Thank you for joining us on the Hope Church LV podcast. We're excited you came across this message. The sermon you are about to listen to is from our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Mark. If you're joining us for the first time, I want to be the first to say, welcome to Hope Church. Go ahead and open up the Hope Church LV app or visit hopechurchlv.com and click connect with us to fill out a short digital connection card. If you haven't done so already, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast to help spread hope to the world. Once again, thanks for joining us today. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Mark chapter 2. We will be there in just a moment. I want to begin today by uh, setting a scene for you that I'm sure all of you have experienced to some level. I want you to imagine you are hanging out with your family and it is family game night. Or maybe your small group or a group of friends, you all gather around the table and somebody says, let's play a board game. Now, I don't know how you feel about that. I I love game night. But I would submit to you that in that moment, around that table are two groups of people. The first group of people are rule followers. And there's another, okay, and there's another group of people that are rule breakers. I won't call her out. Well, I will. She's not here. My wife is a rule breaker. She thinks signs are a suggestion. (laughs) There are some of you that think when you play a game that you should follow the rules of that game. You rightly think the game should be played how it was meant to be played. There are others of you that just would like to play the game however your little sinful heart desires in the moment, regardless of how the rules say you should play. Probably guess how I feel about that. I am a rule follower. In fact, I remember Long time ago, 18 years ago, my wife and I were, were dating at the time. We were dating in high school, and, and it was the first time I was hanging out with her whole extended family. Those of you who are dating, you know it was like a big deal. I'm nervous. I'm trying to be on my best behavior and put on a good impression. And it's her, her mom and her, her extended family, and all the aunts and uncles are there, and they all say, let's play this new game we just picked up. So we all gather around the table, and, and they're un- unpacking it, and, and, uh, and, we're, and we're getting ready to play the game. And, and I said, well, how do you play this game? And, and one of her family members, I won't say who, said, I don't know. Let's just figure it out. And I had a moment where I thought, what do I do right now? Because I wanted to say, and I actually did end up saying, we don't have to figure it out. There are rules right here. And I can't tell you, this is so true, 18 years later to this day, I have been branded on that side of the family as the rules guy. It doesn't matter if we're talking about board games. It doesn't matter what we're talking about. Oh, you know, Scott's the rules guy. He's always got to play by the rules. And, And they're honestly not wrong. It's how I've always been. Some of you can relate. Others of you are judging me right now. I've been a rules guy. I remember I've shared before, I'm the youngest of three siblings in my house. And um, I was honestly kind of a punk little brother. Um, I was constantly on the lookout for when my brother or sister were breaking the rules so I could tell my mom and dad and they could get in trouble. I know it's terrible. 
Specifically, I remember when my sister was a teenager and she started having been able to go out with her friends and she had a curfew. And I don't know how curfews worked in your house, but for us, if 11 o'clock came and you weren't home and your curfew was 11 o'clock, 1101 is not the curfew, 1102 is not the curfew, 11 o'clock. So there I am at about 1055 hiding behind the couch. <laughs> All giddy. And I'm looking at the clock, 11 o'clock comes, no, but Kelly's not coming in. And then I'm thinking, okay, I can't wait. Is it gonna be four minutes? Is it gonna be six minutes? Is it gonna be 10 minutes that I get to tell mom? I know some of you guys are like, this guy's terrible. I know, I'm sorry. And I would literally tell my mom every rule that my sister or my brother broke. Why am I talking about being a rules guy today? We have been journeying as a church through the gospel of Mark, verse by verse through the gospel of Mark. And we have come to a place over the last few weeks where we are seeing the Bible's version of the rules, guys. They're called the Pharisees. And they are on the lookout like I was with my siblings, constantly trying to figure out who was breaking the rules. They thought they were the rule keepers, and we are on the lookout to find anybody who's not playing by the religious rules. They knew the rules, and they were insisting that everybody play by them. So a couple weeks ago, Pastor Trenton preached a message on the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. The self-righteousness of the Pharisees saw Jesus hanging out with who they deemed were sinners and people breaking the rules. And so the Pharisees had something to say about it. Last week, Pastor Brian Loritz talked about how people, who, 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 the, the Pharisees who thought they had all the rules were looking at Jesus' disciples and saying, wait, they're not playing by the rules. And they questioned Jesus on it. So that catches us up to where we are in the gospel of Mark. Miracles are happening. Amazing things for the kingdom of God are taking place. And honestly, the Pharisees are losing control. They had a very strict control of the, of the day around that time, and, and they were losing that to this new person named Jesus who is making waves. And so we're going to read today about another story where the Pharisees are calling out rule breakers and what we can learn from them. Now, why should you lean in? If that wasn't enough to kind of catch you up and make you lean into the message today, we always want to give you a reason why we believe this matters for our lives. We don't want to play church here at Hope. We want to always point to the word of God and say, why does this matter for our lives? And so very simply, if you're asking the question, why does this matter? I want to give us one simple reason. And here it is. We all have a little Pharisee in us. Couple of you agree, but it's true for all of us. You may be thinking, you don't know me. Listen, we all have a little Pharisee in us. What do I mean? There's something in our lives, maybe multiple things in our lives, where we stand back in judgment and think, why are you doing it that way? There's something, whether you love Jesus or not, there is something in your life, multiple things in your life where you're going, you're looking down your nose and you're thinking, I wouldn't do it that way. That's not the right way to do it. And really, it's this idea of thinking we are better or we could do better. And maybe you're not quite convinced. I, I put together a little self-examination that'll take us two minutes. If you're thinking, I'm not a Pharisee, see if you can pass this test. Here's the first one. 
When scripture gives examples of sin, do I tend to think about the sins of others rather than my own? You guys ever been there? You're opening the book of Proverbs for your God time. And as soon as you jump in, you're going, ooh, my wife needs to hear that verse. <laughs> maybe, I'll, maybe I'll text it to her. Listen, pro tip, don't text it to her. Just thinking about you today, babe. Like, that's a weird verse to be thinking about. Yeah, I got you. <laughs> maybe, like, we thought that. I thought that, man, if I could just share this with my friend or my kids or whatever it may be. So that's a good test. Here's the second one. Is there anyone I am mad at right now? And in my mind, the solution is they need to change. If they only just understood or said this or did this, and it would all be good. Here's the third. If you're not quite convinced you're a Pharisee, would I be shocked to see Jesus accept certain sinners if they came to faith in him? We all have them. You're thinking, I know God is powerful, but I don't know about that one. <laughs> I don't know about that kind of people, God, or that kind of person. I don't know. We all have a little Pharisee in us. We all sit on our thrones of awesomeness and judge in some capacity other people. For really honest, because it's church, we sometimes like to see others fail because it makes us feel better. If we're really honest, we pat ourselves on the back when we did better than the people in our lives. It's the little Pharisee in us. That's why the theologian R.C. Sproul said it this way. Sometimes we emulate the Pharisees more than we imitate Christ. So with that on the table, I want to read this passage of Scripture to see what God might have for us today. Mark chapter 2. Ladies and gentlemen, we are finishing the second chapter of Mark. Only 14 more chapters to go before we finish the gospel of Mark. It's a journey. And let's continue that journey here today. Verse 23. One Sabbath... He was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, this is Jesus and his disciples, they began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar. Okay, here's the deal with that, by the way. When you read weird names in the Bible, just say them fast and act confident, and nobody will know you don't know how to say it. <laughs> I've literally done this twice already, and I still can't get that. Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. Also he gave to those who were with him. And he said to them, here it is, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I want to take this scripture and verse by verse talk through the Sabbath and this idea and what we can learn. And so I want to break it up in two parts. The first part is really focusing on this idea of the Sabbath. Part one of today is just looking at this idea of the Sabbath. It starts out one Sabbath. I don't want to take for granted a room full of people. We even know what that word means. And so we need to, to define some terms. What is this idea of Sabbath? Well, very simply, Sabbath is a Hebrew word that means to rest, to stop. The word is Shabbat. The word Shabbat in the Hebrew language means to stop, to rest, to cease from doing. This idea of Sabbath was actually God's idea. 
He is a good, good father who gives good gifts to his children. And the Sabbath was something he gave to us to stop. You say, stop what? Stop working. Stop worrying. Stop wanting. And begin to remember him and his good gifts and and delight in him. He was so passionate about it, in fact, that he actually made it one of the Ten Commandments. Even if you're new to Bible study or church today, everybody's heard of the Ten Commandments. Moses, the servant of the Lord, back in the book of Exodus, went on a mountain to hear from God. And really, God gave him ten things, big ideas of how people should follow him to live life to the full, called the Ten Commandments. The Sabbath is in one of the Ten Commandments. Let's look at it, Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 and 9. God says, remember the Sabbath day. To keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. So the Sabbath day was a day to be set apart for God's people to rest, to delight, to experience the great gifts that God gave them. And so from then until now, the Saturday in the Jewish tradition is Sabbath Saturday. So they began, because they take God's word very seriously, they began to enjoy this very good gift. And that is what I want to focus on first. The Sabbath is a gift. It is something God gave us. And we're going to talk about how we can apply that to our lives now as we experience Sabbath. But we have a tendency as humans to take the gifts of God and elevate them to be like God. Meaning, we worship the gift instead of the giver of the gift. And that's exactly what's happening in this story. So part two of our text today, the Sabbath situation, as we make our way through this story, we're going to see four moments that happen that I think have relevance for our lives. Here's the first one. The disciples have a snack. The disciples have a snack. Let's look at it. On one Sabbath day, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. This is important for us because you have to remember that we, these disciples are humans. A lot of times we can look at the disciples of the New Testament, and we could think they are, they are these spiritual giants that are like floating on clouds. Remember, we've already seen it in the Gospel of Mark. These are fishermen and tax collectors, and ordinary people. So this ragtag group of disciples is following Jesus, and if you haven't caught it yet, Jesus is on the move. He's extremely busy. He's healing people. He's doing amazing things. And just in case you didn't know, he's not taking his private jet to all these locations. He's not taking a limo. Back in that century, they were walking 90% of the time. They're on a road trip. Four kids, and those of you who have kids know road trips can be a trip. What's the number one question kids always ask on road trip? Dad, are we? Are we there yet? Like, Jesus, are we? Like, where is this next town where people need to get healed? I'm tired. I'm hungry. I can imagine Jesus saying, hey, there's a grain field coming up. When we get to the grain field, you can pop some of that stuff off. You can have a little snack. And there's some people that didn't like that. Which leads to the next part of our story. The Pharisees throw a fit. Pharisees throw a fit. Look at it. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Okay, let's talk about this for a minute. 
Because this is when the Pharisees just became like little Scott hiding behind the couch, waiting for my sister to break curfew. Like, why are the disciples or the Pharisees in this grain field? They're just following around. They're just lurking in the shadows like some religious paparazzi trying to catch Jesus and his disciples breaking the rules. Because they held the Sabbath as a very, very, very significant thing. You say, how did this beautiful gift of God now be weaponized to be used against Jesus and his disciples? Well, Jewish rabbis, when they had heard and they had practiced the Sabbath, Jewish rabbis wanted to give Jewish people a little bit more um, information and a little bit more uh, 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 commandments on how to follow the Sabbath. And so the Jewish Talmud is a book for Jewish rabbis where they really sought to provide clarity for Jewish people on basically how to live the best Jewish life. The problem is when we take what God said and we add a bunch of stuff to it, it becomes very, very dangerous. And that's exactly what happened in the Jewish Talmud. All throughout the Talmud is this, is this list of do's and don'ts and watch outs. And, and it's, it takes God's gift and it changes it to something it was never intended to be. Ironically, it takes the Sabbath specifically from this day of blessing and turns it into a terrible religious burden. In fact, they established in the Jewish Talmud 39 forbidden categories of things you couldn't do on the Sabbath day that they said that technically is work. So I want to show you a very exhausting list of what you cannot do on the Sabbath if you are a good behaving Jewish person. And it's exhausting. Here it is. You cannot do these things. Carrying, burning, extinguishing, finishing, writing, erasing, cooking, washing, sewing, tearing, knotting, untying, shaping, plowing, planting, reaping, harvesting, threshing, winnowing, selecting, sifting, grinding, kneading, combing, spinning, dyeing, chain stitching, warping. Can we stop? What is warping? <laughs> like you can't do this. What is this? Don't do this. What is it? I don't know if I'm doing it. Weaving, unraveling, building, demolishing, trapping, shearing, slaughtering, skinning, tanning, smoothing, and marking. That right there, ladies and gentlemen, sounds like a relaxing Saturday Sabbath. <laughs> Enjoy your day. Don't do any of that. They took what was God's amazing blessing and they made it a religious burden. They began to focus on what you couldn't do rather than what they were being invited into, which is rest. The Sabbath is a gift, and so they miss the whole point. And so in this story, they call Jesus and his disciples. They say, foul, you're breaking the rules. And really, they're breaking the rules in two ways. One, we already saw, they, they, they took the, the, grain of he, the heads of grain off of the wheat. So that was work in the Pharisees' mind. But also in the Talmud, they, they explain how many, how many steps you can travel on the Sabbath day before it is constituted as work. And the number is 1,999 steps. That's how many steps. It's about a mile, they say. I have not tried that. I'm, I'm, I'm trusting the source. 1,999 steps. If you do that or under, you are good and you haven't worked. But you take a 2,000 step and you have worked. So imagine a Jewish family out on a Saturday Sabbath stroll. 
And they're walking around and all the while you're counting, you're not resting, you're counting how many steps you've taken. So you're, you're good, you're chilling, you're back at like 1800, but then it comes up to 1998, 1999. Wait, guys, stop. Well, now what do we do? <laughs> we can't transport back home. And if I take a 2000 step, I'm a Sabbath breaker. I would not even leave my house. This incredible blessing has become this terrible burden. And it still continues to this day. Several years ago in college, I had the opportunity to go to the nation of Israel. A group of us from college went to Israel and we checked into our hotel. And one of the first things we saw was this sign, Sabbath elevator. That's weird. Different country though. So I'm not sure what that's about. But finally, my curiosity just got the best of me. And I asked the hotel staff, what is up with the Sabbath elevator? Does it have like something special with the elevator? And they said, oh, no, 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 no. On Saturdays, which is our Sabbath, that elevator stops at every floor so that we don't have to do the work of pressing the buttons. Do you see how this incredible blessing became a legalistic religious exercise? So Pastor Brian Loritz last week when he was talking about fasting, he had something very, very significant to say about some of these things that we take and we, we make them what they were never intended to be. And I want to put that back on the screen. He said a very good thing can become a very bad thing when it becomes an ultimate thing. That's what the Pharisees are doing in this story. They're taking a very good thing and they're making it a very bad thing because they are elevating it to an ultimate thing. And so I just want to pause here by way of application. Always want to see where does the word of God bear weight on our lives and ask a couple questions as we apply this. Here's the first one. Where have you elevated a good thing and made it an ultimate thing? Even as I say that, as you read it on the screen, there may be something that the Holy Spirit is just saying, this is your thing. That you, it's a good gift of mine that you have taken and you have made it an ultimate thing. Maybe for you, it's, it's money. Money is a gift from God. Money is a gift that, you, that, that, that allows us to live the lives that we live. But maybe you've taken the good gift of God and you've taken it somewhere it was never intended to be. And now it's an ultimate thing. Or maybe for you, it's pleasure. Again, the good gift of pleasure and enjoying things in our lives. And you've taken that as the end all be all of our lives. And it becomes an ultimate thing, which makes the very good thing a very bad thing. I know a struggle for me and maybe a struggle for you is taking the good gift of my family. My amazing wife, Candace, my four amazing kids. We can take very good gifts and they are amazing. My wife is an amazing woman. My kids are amazing kids and they are great in their role, but they are terrible gods. And if I begin to elevate them to places they were never meant to be, it can be damaging for my soul because they can't give me what God can give me. These things that we elevate can't give us what we're looking for because only God can give us. The Bible word for this, by the way, is idol. It's something we worship. And we may never use that phrase that we worship this thing, but my life says differently. If every affection and time and thought goes into these things only, I have begun to worship this thing. And I've taken a good thing and I've made it a bad thing because I made it an ultimate thing. I once heard a pastor give a great explanation for how to identify idols in our lives. 
He said, if you want to know what the idols are in your lives, simply think about what are the things that you have your, your hand clasped around so tightly. You tell God, God, you can take anything from my life, but don't you dare touch this. It's an idol. By God's grace, we said, Lord, I don't want any idols in my life. Help me by your spirit. Open my hand and say, I'm yours. And whatever you want for my life, I surrender to. So where have you elevated a good thing and made it an ultimate thing? But here's the second way of application from the Pharisees in this story. Where are you throwing a fit when you should be giving grace? Just like these Pharisees. These weary travelers just grabbing a snack. Where are you throwing a fit where you, may be, you, where you should be giving grace? And again, we're all judgmental towards something. We've already established that. And here's the reality of our flesh. We will always find a way to justify our judgment. If I ask you, why are you so upset? Listen, here's why. And you'll give me all the reasons why. We will always in our flesh find ways to justify our judgment. Now, hear me clearly. What I'm saying in this point is not, I'm not speaking against good parenting where there's discipline involved. I'm not speaking against godly accountability. I'm not speaking against a timely rebuke. I thank God for the times in my life where my brothers and sisters in Christ have had to call me out on my stuff. But for me, I can speak from experience. I know at times in the name of good parenting, I've been an angry dad. For me, in times of, of godly accountability, I've had a, a demeaning spirit towards my brothers and sisters in Christ. In the name of, of a timely rebuke, I've been, I've been judgmental in my words and actions towards people, and I've been harsh and critical. So we have to ask the question, where am I being judgmental where I should be giving grace? How do we fix that? We say, God, I understand the grace that I've been given. Would you help me be a giver of grace like I've been a recipient of grace? The same grace that has changed my life. Would you allow me to be a conduit for that for other people in my life? How dare I receive the grace that I have from Jesus and then act like a Pharisee in front of everyone that, that I know? So the disciples have a snack. Let's get back to our story. The Pharisees throw a fit. Here's the, the third movement in our text today. Jesus clears things up. Jesus clears things up. He said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of that high priest and ate the bread of presence. I'm not even going to try. There's no way I'm going over six. Which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat and also gave it to those who were with him. I love how Jesus begins to clear this up. The first thing he says to these Pharisees, these experts of the, of the law, these memorizers of the Old Testament, he said, have you never read? Of course they have read. They spent their entire lives studying this and reading these stories and memorizing this. So Jesus, in a sense, is kind of trolling them right here to say, the very thing you've spent your entire existence becoming an expert on is not bearing any weight on your lives. And so it doesn't matter. You're being religious. Have you never read? And he told them a story they would have been very familiar with from 1 Samuel chapter 21. You can go back and read it later. I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. David has just been anointed the, the king of Israel. 
but he's not yet the king because there's a madman who's currently king named Saul, and he's caught wind that David has already been anointed as the next king, and so he has sought to kill David and his crew. So David and his boys are literally on the run from a maniac king named Saul. And just like Jesus and his disciples, they are out in the fields and they are weary. And they come up to the tabernacle of the, or the tent of presence of God. And in that tent, there was special bread called the bread of presence or the show bread that was only intended for the priests to eat. So this is kind of a faux pas or a no-no that David lets his men eat this bread. But Jesus specifically says, and nowhere else in scripture is this action condemned. Which leads us to believe, and what I think that Jesus was showing the Pharisees, he was showing them their religiosity. And he was saying to them, God's compassion should override our religious rituals and rites. Compassion for other people, seeing a need and that need being met. He said, you have spent your whole life studying these things that clearly aren't having any bearing on how you actually live. And the same at times can be true for us. And then he drops this iconic line and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Here's where I just want to pause for a moment and have a practical conversation about what Sabbath looks like in our day and age. What does Sabbath look like in 2022? I believe Jesus's day really needed that second part of the statement. They needed to know that they were not created for rest. They had rhythms. Saturday was, a, was an all-off day in this time. And so they needed to hear in this slower-paced society, you guys weren't created for Sabbath. But I believe it's the exact opposite with our culture. Our culture needs to hear the first part. When he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man. In other words, the, the Pharisees made way too big of a deal of the Sabbath. Clearly, we have seen that happen. They've made it way, too, they've idolized it. They've made it way too big of a deal. But I'm afraid in our culture, we've swung way too far the other way and we don't make any kind of deal about the Sabbath. In fact, just like last week when we talked about fasting, the regular practice of Sabbath in the Christian's life is very, 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 very rare. He said, the Sabbath was made for man. Back in the very beginning of God's word, the story of creation, we actually see God himself Sabbath. In the very beginning, after he's done creating, look what it says in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the Sabbath day from all his work that he had done. God rested. Now, don't hear me wrong. He did not need to rest. God never got tired. He's not weary and saying, man, I really need a break after all that creation. What he was doing in that moment is he was establishing a rhythm that his people would continue to carry out. And unfortunately, we have lost sight of that in our culture. So again, by, by way of, of application, do you, do I regularly practice Sabbath as a spiritual discipline? 
Jesus' time, they made way, way, way too much of the Sabbath. But in 2022, what they made an ultimate thing, we've made a non-existent thing. And we don't even think about the Sabbath. Some of you even right now are like, man, I've been in church a long time and I've never actually heard anybody say, you should regularly practice Sabbath rest as a part of your spiritual formation as a Jesus follower. So why don't we do it? There's probably a lot of reasons, but I know one that I think we can all get our heads around. An enemy of practicing Sabbath in our culture is this, busyness, the badge of honor. Busyness in our culture is almost synonymous with with value. Like you ask anybody, man, how are things? Busy. Man, it's so, but you want to look at my calendar? Like, it's busy. How are things at home? How are things with the family? Man, it's good, but we're just busy. And we have actually bought into the lie, even as Jesus followers, the busier I am, the more important I am. You almost feel bad in 2022 when you say, man, I'm healthy. I'm like good. I got rhythms. I'm fine. You're like, oh, I don't want people to think I'm not a hard worker. I don't want people to think I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Busyness is this badge of honor that is killing us. People are hitting walls left and right because they haven't had any sort of rhythm or rest in their lives. We see it all over Instagram. Rise and grind. There's this, there's this phrase, all these phrasings that are showing us to go more and be harder and do things more and more and more and more. My favorite is this, I'll rest when I'm dead. I'll, I'll, I'll sleep when I'm dead. It's like, well, if you don't do something, you're gonna be there quicker than you want. And I get it. I mean, my wife, we sit down sometimes and we open up the iCal and we're going, my goodness. We're like exhausted even just looking at it. My wife is an Uber driver who doesn't get paid for it. Going everywhere, putting miles and miles and miles on the minivan. Gymnastics and dance and jujitsu and and school activities and church activities. And just like your family, we're looking at each other at the end of the week and going like, how did we make it through that? God help us if we don't have something to reset us and center us on the things that actually matter. This idea of Sabbath. And I, I hear right now, I can hear some of you thinking, yeah, 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 that's cool for you, Scott. You're a pastor. You work at a church. But like, I cannot Sabbath because I just have too much to do. And I would just invite you to think, maybe that sentiment is the exact reason why you need a Sabbath. If you're saying, I would love to do that, that sounds like a really idealistic idea, but I just have too much on my plate. Maybe that would be a marker for you to make you realize how much you actually need the Sabbath. I'll say it this way. The weekly Sabbath reminds us that God is God and that we are not. I can't do it all. Exactly. You can't do it all. And can I just say, this is really hard for me. If you know me, I don't know if anyone here is like into the Enneagram, kid, but I'm Enneagram 3. You know what that means. It means I love to-do lists and I love checking boxes. That is what I love to do. I'm an achiever. I'm a doer, blah, blah, blah. You've heard my story. You've heard how we are. Some of you guys are like, oh, he's one of those guys. I'm one of those guys. When you tell me I can't do it all, part of me wants to say, watch, I'll show you. I can, but I can't. And the weekly Sabbath reminds me, I'm not God. And I need to pause. See, we live in this world that's making us, trying to make us more like machines than human beings. But machines one day just stop working. And they need maintenance 
And they need to be fixed and worked on. And so many people in our culture, that's what's happening to them. In the church, out of the church, we're acting like machines and we need to get worked on. We need a re-centering. We need a Sabbath break to say, you are not God. You can't do it all. And that's a very good place to be. God made us for, for rhythm. It's how he created the world around us. The sun rises, the sun sets, the seasons come, the seasons go. We work hard and then we rest. We stop to delight in the things that God has given us, the gifts that he has given us. Men, some of you men, just like me, you're working so hard to provide for your family that you don't see so much because you're so hard working for your family. You're giving, you're, you're giving, you're trying to work so hard to give your family what they wish they had if they just were with you more. I'm working so hard to provide these things that they don't really need. What they really need is you and I with them more. And I'm so guilty of this. So guilty of having my priorities flipped. I love what Justin Early, this author of a book called The Common Rule said. He said, we seem to have come to a point in our culture where we praise the acts of being inhuman as acts of being a great human. Never stopping, machine-like living. We're going, man, that guy, that guy's getting it done. Do you regularly practice Sabbath as a spiritual discipline? I can tell you right now, before COVID, the answer to that question for me and my household was a big, fat no and it was killing us. I mean, you guys have been there. There'd be days where we would get through the weekend, a couple days off. And my wife and I would look at each other and say, where did those two days go? How did we get so busy? I mean, there's kids everywhere, ministry demands. I'm trying to lead well. And her and I, we looked at each other and she said to me, this is not working. And I'd be willing to bet for some of you, that's where you are. You're saying, this is not working. Where did all this time go? And God kind of took us on a journey of really exploration on how to fix it. And a part of that journey, I read a book that maybe many of you have read, but I highly recommend it if you have it. It's a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. It's by a pastor in the Pacific Northwest uh, named John Mark Comer. And it's really a book recentering us on the spiritual disciplines. One of those is Sabbath. And so we begin to very elementary practice this idea of weekly Sabbath. Now, remember, I said practice. We are not perfect in this. We're getting ready to go on vacation. So this last Friday was not a great Sabbath. We were working hard to get ready for vacation. But practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes progress. And so we begin to practice this idea of Sabbath. So for us, it's Friday. On Friday mornings at the Worthington House, the alarm clocks are not set. Praise God. My wife and I, the rest of the week, we're getting up in that 5 o'clock hour. But on Fridays, there's no alarm clock set. The only way I'm waking up is if a kid punches me in the face and says, it's time to wake up and play. No alarm clock. Praise God. We get up. We don't have a, a, a rigid schedule. We're going to laugh together. Again, this isn't perfect. It's practice. We're going to make breakfast slow together. We're going to spend time with God. We're going to go on bike rides, and we're not going to worry about how many steps we're taking because we're just going to delight in the good gifts that God has given us. We play video games, but we play video games together. That's the rule on Sabbath. 
Other days you could play by yourself, but on Sabbath, at least you're playing video games together and hanging out with your family. And then on Friday nights, we end, we make homemade pizza, and we watch a family movie from the 1990s because they're just better. (laughs) So we have a long list that we're working through of 90s movies, and this is us just trying to say, God, we need to recenter. We're not God. We can't do it all. I promise you, when we go to bed on Thursday night, the to-do list is still there. And when we wake up on Saturday morning, it's still there. But Friday says we need to center ourselves around the things that matter, the good gifts that God has given us. If you do not practice any sort of regular Sabbath day, I highly recommend it. It has been life-giving for me and my family. It's an area we protect. We try our hardest to not not put anything on the calendar. Again, not perfectly, but we as a practice say we're going to protect this day to rest and to delight in each other and the gifts that God has given us. To finish this up, John Mark Comer said in this book, if you're new to Sabbath, a question to give shape to your practice is this, what could I do for 24 hours that would fill my soul with a deep, throbbing joy that would make me spontaneously combust with wonder, awe, gratitude, and praise? Shabbat is a verb, something you do something you practice. So maybe a a response out of today is just to figure out with your spouse or with your community or whoever you live with, hey, what would it look like for us to take a step in really practicing Sabbath rest? So after Jesus clears it up, let's get back to our story as we close. Jesus drops a bomb. Jesus drops a bomb. Looking at the last verse in this passage. So the son of man, he says, is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, when we read that, we as non-Jewish people might not quite understand why that was a bomb, but he really said two things that would have left the Pharisees' jaws on the floor. The first thing he says is the son of man. As soon as Jesus said that phrase, the Pharisees who had the entire Old Testament memorized would look back to the book of Daniel where the son of man is told to be the Messiah. So when he just explained the Sabbath to them, he said, I am the Messiah. Bomb drop. How dare you as a a carpenter from Nazareth claim to be the savior of the world. But Jesus wasn't done. He said, the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus not only said, I am the Savior of the world, but when he said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, he basically said, I am God. So Pharisees, the person you claim to center your whole lives around, he's standing right in front of you and you are missing him. In effect, Jesus said, when he said, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, he basically made himself the authority over the entire Jewish religion jaw drops, bomb drops. How dare he say this? That's really where I want to close today. I believe this story for those Pharisees in that grain field is the same truth that we can celebrate today at Hope Church at the 1030 service, and that's this, that Jesus himself is the true Sabbath. 
Sabbath is a picture that points to the greater Sabbath, which is Christ. Jesus himself is the true Sabbath. When he's talking about rest and practicing a daily or a weekly routine where you stop and you realize you're not God, it's pointing to a bigger thing that says, listen, you are not God. I am inviting you to my rest. He is the true Sabbath. The Pharisees were so caught up adhering to some religious rules and rituals that they missed the real Sabbath who was standing in front of them in a grain field. Some of us today, for three weeks, we've been calling out these Pharisee tendencies in us. You come to church, you have all the look, you look like the perfect Christian, but you may be missing out on the very thing you claim to be an expert in, the true Sabbath. But I know for others of you, you're here today and you've failed so many times, you, you can never imagine that this God that you feel like you've failed so much would ever give you something like rest. And that's the beauty of the gospel, that he is the true Sabbath. Because the Sabbath exists for the religious person who thinks they got it all together and are trying to prove by their performance that they're worthy of this. And it also exists for the failure who thought they could never have another day of rest again because how could that God ever love me? And everybody in between the gospel Sabbath says, I came, God in the flesh, to live a life you could never live. That's the journey we're walking verse by verse through the gospel of Mark. I came to live a life you could never live. And eventually we're gonna read it. He dies on a cross for the sin of the world. All of our sin, all of our wrongdoings, all of our ambition, all of the things that we know are not good and godly lay on Christ. And he said, it is finished. What is finished? Everything that needed to be done for you to enter into Sabbath rest of Christ. Three days later, he rose again from the dead to prove that he had beat death. So here's how I wanna close today, very simply. If you are a rule keeper in the place today and you think your performance is what is getting you the love of God. I would just show you the true Sabbath rest of God and say that following the rules doesn't keep you in the love of God any more than following the rules got you in the love of God. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. It was grace. But today, if you are a total failure who feels like you have no hope, I want to encourage you that failing at all the so-called rules doesn't keep you from the love of God any more than following all the rules would have gotten you there. That's why we need Christ, the true Sabbath. That's why in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus said this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I would just encourage you, whatever you walked in the building with today, or you're sitting there online watching, whatever you are carrying, he's saying, come to me with all the things you carry, and I will give you rest. So many people care, people who, who, who claim the name of Christ still carrying this backpack full of rocks and religion and things. And Jesus is saying, come to me. Others of you who, who feel like, I can't even believe I'm here right now. I failed so much this week. If you only know, you wouldn't be saying this to me. Christ would. And he does. He says, come to me. Whatever you're carrying, I will give you rest.
So maybe for you, you need to, for the first time ever, experience the Sabbath rest of Christ in a relationship with Jesus. Just like every week, we're gonna have our pastors up here. Maybe for you today, you need to come and experience for the first time the Sabbath rest of a relationship with Jesus that will free you for all eternity. It's an eternal rest. We would love to introduce you to Jesus, show you how to begin following him. But for others of us, maybe followers of Christ, I prayed with several people in the last service. You're just tired. You understand that Christ is your rest, but you haven't been living in that reality. It's like he took the backpack full of all your stuff off of you and you picked it back up and put it on and you're still trying to carry the thing he tried to remove from you. Lay it back down. Come to me. Come to me, all you doubters. Come to me, all you cynics. Come to me, all you religious people. Come to me, all you failures. Come to me, all you sinners. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy burdened and I'll give you rest. Maybe you have things going on in your lives, financial, relational, diagnosis from the doctor. We love an opportunity every week as your pastors to pray for you. Whatever it is that you're carrying and maybe you just want some prayer for. When we stand to sing in just a moment, would you come? Would you let us pray for you? Would you let us ask God who gives rest and who is the true Sabbath to meet you where you are? Jesus, thank you for being our true Sabbath rest. Thank you for your grace. Thank you right now, Holy Spirit, for everything you're doing in every person in this room. I pray by your grace, you would allow us to obey you, whatever it is you're calling us to do, to repent and give our lives to Christ, to be prayed over, to come to this altar and just spend time with you. Whatever you're leading us to do, Lord, would we, would we follow in obedience? Thank you, Lord, for what you say in your word. Thank you for who you are in Jesus' name.